0: Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to chapter 33 of Anne of Green Gables by L. M. Montgomery. After the chapter reading, you'll hear a conversation about the chapter between me and Lauren Burke. Lauren is host of the podcast Bonnets at Dawn, which explores the lives, work, and fandom of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, including several episodes this year about L. M. Montgomery, which I highly recommend. Lauren was also a guest of the Perennials podcast for episode 44 with her co-host, Hannah Chapman. It was really fun to talk to Lauren because alongside all of her knowledge about women writers um, of the time period that L.M. Montgomery was writing in, Lauren herself is also a children's author. So she looks at Montgomery's writing style and what we can learn from her about writing in this chapter And she and I also talked about some of what this chapter has to say about money and class and what it feels like to suddenly be in a room full of rich people. (laughs) And also we talked about things like imposter syndrome, stage fright, and being present in the moment. Enjoy. Chapter 33, The Hotel Concert Put on your white organdy, by all means, Anne, advised Diana decidedly. They were together in the East Gable Chamber. Outside it was only twilight, a lovely yellowish-green twilight with a clear blue cloudless sky. A big round moon, slowly deepening from her pallid luster into burnished silver, hung over the haunted wood. The air was full of sweet summer sounds, sleepy birds twittering, freakish breezes, faraway voices and laughter. But in Anne's room, the blind was drawn, and the lamp lighted, for an important toilette was being made. The East Gable was a very different place from what it had been on that night four years before, when Anne had felt its bareness penetrate to the marrow of her spirit with its inhospitable chill. Changes had crept in, Marilla conniving at them resignedly, until it was as sweet and dainty a nest as a young girl could desire. The velvet carpet with the pink roses and the pink silk curtains of Anne's early visions had certainly never materialized, but her dreams had kept pace with her growth, and it is not probable she lamented them. The floor was covered with a pretty matting, and the curtains that softened the high window and fluttered in the vagrant breezes were of pale green art muslin. The walls, hung not with gold and silver brocade tapestry, but with a dainty apple-blossom paper, were adorned with a few good pictures given Anne by Mrs. Allen. Miss Stacy's photograph occupied the place of honor, and Anne made a sentimental point of keeping fresh flowers on the bracket under it. Tonight, a spike of white lilies faintly perfumed the room like the dream of a fragrance. There was no mahogany furniture, but there was a white-painted bookcase filled with books, a cushioned wicker rocker, a toilette table befrilled with white muslin, a quaint, gilt-framed mirror with chubby pink cupids and purple grapes painted over its arched top that used to hang in the spare room, and a low white bed. Anne was dressing for a concert at the White Sands Hotel. The guests had got it up in aid of the Charlottetown Hospital and had hunted out all the available amateur talent in the surrounding districts to help it along. Bertha Sampson and Pearl Clay of the White Sands Baptist Choir had been asked to sing a duet, Milton Clark of Newbridge was to give a violin solo, Winnie Adela Blair of Carmody was to sing a Scotch ballad, and Laura Spencer of Spencervale and Anne Shirley of Avonlea were to her sight. As Anne would have said at one time, it was an epoch in her life, and she was deliciously a thrill with the excitement of it. Matthew was in the seventh heaven of gratified pride over the honor conferred on his Anne, and Marilla was not far behind, although she would have died rather than admit it, and said she didn't think it was very proper for a lot of young folks to be gadding over to the hotel without any responsible person with them. Anne and Diana were to drive over with Jane Andrews and her brother Billy in their double seated buggy, and several other Avonlea girls and boys were going too, There was a party of visitors expected out from town, and after the concert, a supper was to be given to the performers. "'Do you really think the organdy will be best?' queried Anne anxiously. "'I don't think it's as pretty as my blue-flowered muslin, and it certainly isn't so fashionable.' "'But it suits you ever so much better,' said Diana. "'It's so soft and frilly and clinging. The muslin is stiff and makes you look too dressed up, but the organdy seems as if it grew on you.' Anne sighed and yielded. Diana was beginning to have a reputation for notable taste in dressing, and her advice on such subjects was much sought after. She was looking very pretty herself on this particular night, in a dress of the lovely wild rose pink from which Anne was forever debarred. But she was not to take any part in the concert, so her appearance was of minor importance. All her pains were bestowed upon Anne, who, she vowed, must, for the credit of Avonlea, be dressed and combed and adorned to the Queen's taste." Pull out that frill a little more. So, here, let me tie your sash. Now for your slippers. I'm going to braid your hair in two thick braids and tie them halfway up with big white bows. No, don't pull out a single curl over your forehead. Just have the soft part. There's no way you do your hair suits you so well, Anne. And Mrs. Allen says you look like a Madonna when you part it so. I shall fasten this little white house rose just behind your ear. There was just one on my bush and I saved it for you. Shall I put my pearl beads on? "'asked Anne. "'Matthew brought me a string from town last week, "'and I know he'd like to see them on me.' "'Diana pursed up her lips, "'put her black head on one side critically, "'and finally pronounced in favor of the beads, "'which were thereupon tied around Anne's slim, "'milk-white throat. "'There's something so stylish about you, Anne,' "'said Diana, with unenvious admiration. "'You hold your head with such an air. "'I suppose it's your figure. "'I am just a dumpling. "'I've always been afraid of it, "'and now I know it is so.' "'Well, I suppose I shall just have to resign myself to it.' "'But you have such dimples,' said Anne, smiling affectionately into the pretty, vivacious face so near her own. "'Lovely dimples, like little dents in cream. "'I have given up all hope of dimples. "'My dimpled dream will never come true. "'But so many of my dreams have that I mustn't complain. "'Am I all ready now?' "'All ready.' assured diana as marilla appeared in the doorway a gaunt figure with grayer hair than of yore and no fewer angles but with a much softer face come right in and look at our elocutionist marilla doesn't she look lovely marilla emitted a sound between a sniff and a grunt she looks neat and proper i like that way of fixing her hair but i expect she'll ruin that dress driving over there in the dust and dew with it and it looks most too thin for these damp nights Organdy's the most unserviceable stuff in the world, anyhow, and I told Matthew so when he got it, but there's no use in saying anything to Matthew nowadays. Time was when he would take my advice, but now he just buys things for Anne regardless, and the clerks at Carmody know they can palm anything off on him. Just let them tell him a thing is pretty and fashionable, and Matthew plunks his money down for it. Mind you keep your skirt clear of the wheel, Anne, and put your warm jacket on. Then Marilla stalked downstairs, thinking proudly how sweet Anne looked, with that one moonbeam from the forehead to the crown and regretting that she could not go to the concert herself to hear her girl recite. "'I wonder if it is too damp for my dress,' said Anne anxiously. "'Not a bit of it,' said Diana, pulling up the window blind. "'It's a perfect night, and there won't be any dew. Look at the moonlight!' "'I'm so glad my window looks east into the sun rising,' said Anne, going over to Diana. "'It's so splendid to see the morning coming up over those long hills and glowing through those sharp fir tops.' It's new every morning, and I feel as if I washed my very soul in that bath of earliest sunshine. Oh, Diana, I love this little room so dearly. I don't know how I'll get along without it when I go to town next month. Don't speak of your going away tonight, begged Diana. I don't want to think of it. It makes me so miserable, and I do want to have a good time this evening. What are you going to recite, Anne? And are you nervous? Not a bit. I've recited so often in public, I don't mind at all now. I've decided to give the maiden's vow— It's so pathetic. Laura Spencer is going to give a comic recitation, but I'd rather make people cry than laugh. What will you recite if they encore you? They won't dream of encoring me, scoffed Anne, who was not without her own secret hopes that they would, and already visioned herself telling Matthew all about it at the next morning's breakfast table. There are Billy and Jane now. I hear the wheels. Come on. Billy Andrews insisted that Anne should ride on the front seat with him, so she unwillingly climbed up. She would have much preferred to sit back with the girls, where she could have laughed and chattered to her heart's content. There was not much of either laughter or chatter in Billy. He was a big, fat, stolid youth of twenty, with a round, expressionless face and a painful lack of conversational gifts. But he admired Anne immensely, and was puffed up with pride over the prospect of driving to White Sands with that slim, upright figure beside him. Anne, by dint of talking over her shoulder to the girls and occasionally passing a sop of civility to Billy, who grinned and chuckled and never could think of any reply until it was too late, contrived to enjoy the drive in spite of it all. It was a night for enjoyment. The road was full of buggies, all bound for the hotel, and laughter, silver clear, echoed and re-echoed along it. When they reached the hotel it was a blaze of light from top to bottom— They were met by the ladies of the concert committee, one of whom took Anne off to the performers' dressing room, which was filled with the members of a Charlottetown symphony club, among whom Anne felt suddenly shy and frightened and countrified. Her dress, which, in the East Gable, had seemed so dainty and pretty, now seemed simple and plain. Too simple and plain, she thought, among all the silks and laces that glistened and rustled around her. What were her pearl beads compared to the diamonds of the big, handsome lady near her? and how poor her one wee white rose must look beside all the hothouse flowers the others wore. Anne laid her hat and jacket away, and shrank miserably into a corner. She wished herself back in the white room at Green Gables. It was still worse on the platform of the big concert hall of the hotel, where she presently found herself. The electric lights dazzled her eyes, the perfume and hum bewildered her. She wished she were sitting down in the audience with Diana and Jane, who seemed to be having a splendid time away at the back. She was wedged in between a stout lady in pink silk and a tall, scornful-looking girl in a white lace dress. The stout lady occasionally turned her head squarely around and surveyed Anne through her eyeglasses until Anne, acutely sensitive of being so scrutinized, felt that she must scream aloud, and the white lace girl kept talking audibly to her next neighbor about the country bumpkins and rustic bells in the audience, languidly anticipating such fun from the displays of local talent on the program." Anne believed that she would hate that white lace girl to the end of life. Unfortunately for Anne, a professional elocutionist was staying at the hotel and had consented to recite. She was a lithe, dark-eyed woman in a wonderful gown of shimmering grey stuff like woven moonbeams, with gems on her neck and in her dark hair. She had a marvelously flexible voice and wonderful power of expression. The audience went wild over her selection." Anne, forgetting all about herself and her troubles for the time, listened with rapt and shining eyes, but when the recitation ended, she suddenly put her hands over her face. She could never get up and recite after that. Never. Had she ever thought she could recite? Oh, if she were only back at Green Gables. At this unpropitious moment, her name was called... Somehow Anne, who did not notice the rather guilty little start of surprise the white lace girl gave, and would not have understood the subtle compliment implied therein if she had, got on her feet and moved dizzily out to the front. She was so pale that Diana and Jane, down in the audience, clasped each other's hands in nervous sympathy. Anne was the victim of an overwhelming attack of stage fright. Often, as she had recited in public, she had never before faced such an audience as this, and the sight of it paralyzed her energies completely. Everything was so strange, so brilliant, so bewildering—the rows of ladies in evening dress, the critical faces, the whole atmosphere of wealth and culture about her. Very different, this, from the plain benches at the debating club, filled with the homely, sympathetic faces of friends and neighbors. These people, she thought, would be merciless critics— Perhaps like the white lace girl, they anticipated amusement from her rustic efforts. She felt hopelessly, helplessly ashamed and miserable. Her knees trembled, her heart fluttered, a horrible faintness came over her. Not a word could she utter, and the next moment she would have fled from the platform despite the humiliation which, she felt, must ever after be her portion if she did so. But suddenly, as her dilated, frightened eyes gazed out over the audience, she saw Gilbert Blythe away at the back of the room, bending forward with a smile on his face, a smile which seemed to Anne at once triumphant and taunting. In reality, it was nothing of the kind. Gilbert was merely smiling with appreciation of the whole affair in general, and of the effect produced by Anne's slender white form and spiritual face against a background of palms in particular. Josie Pye, whom he had driven over, sat beside him, and her face certainly was both triumphant and taunting. But Anne did not see Josie, and would not have cared if she had. She drew a long breath and flung her head up proudly, courage and determination tingling over her like an electric shock. She would not fail before Gilbert Blythe. He should never be able to laugh at her, never, never, Her fright and nervousness vanished, and she began her recitation, her clear, sweet voice reaching to the farthest corner of the room without a tremor or a break. Self-possession was fully restored to her, and in the reaction from that horrible moment of powerlessness, she recited as she had never done before. When she finished, there were bursts of honest applause. Anne, stepping back to her seat, blushing with shyness and delight, found her hand vigorously clasped and shaken by the stout lady in pink silk. "'My dear, you did splendidly,' she puffed. "'I've been crying like a baby. "'Actually, I have. "'There, they're encoring you. "'They're bound to have you back.' "'Oh, I can't go,' said Anne confusedly. "'But yet I must, or Matthew will be disappointed. "'He said they would encore me.' "'Then don't disappoint Matthew,' said the pink lady, laughing. "'Smiling, blushing, limpid-eyed, Anne tripped back and gave a quaint, "'funny little selection that captivated her audience still further.' The rest of the evening was quite a little triumph for her. When the concert was over, the stout pink lady, who was the wife of an American millionaire, took her under her wing and introduced her to everybody, and everybody was very nice to her. The professional elocutionist, Mrs. Evans, came and chatted with her, telling her that she had a charming voice and interpreted her selections beautifully. Even the white lace girl paid her a languid little compliment. They had supper in the big, beautifully decorated dining room. Diana and Jane were invited to partake of this also, since they had come with Anne, but Billy was nowhere to be found, having decamped in mortal fear of some such invitation. He was in waiting for them with the team, however, when it was all over, and the three girls came merrily out into the calm, white moonshine radiance. Anne breathed deeply, and looked into the clear sky beyond the dark boughs of the firs. Oh, it was good to be out again in the purity and silence of the night. How great and still and wonderful everything was, with the murmur of the sea sounding through it and the darkling cliffs beyond like grim giants guarding enchanted coasts. "'Hasn't it been a perfectly splendid time?' sighed Jane as they drove away. "'I just wish I was a rich American and could spend my summer at a hotel and wear jewels and low necked dresses and have ice cream and chicken salad every blessed day. I'm sure it would be ever so much more fun than teaching school.' "'Anne, your recitation was simply great, although I thought at first you were never going to begin. I think it was better than Mrs. Evans.' "'Oh, no, don't say things like that, Jane,' said Anne quickly, "'because it sounds silly. It couldn't be better than Mrs. Evans, you know, for she is a professional, and I'm only a schoolgirl with a little knack of reciting. I'm quite satisfied if the people just liked mine pretty well.' "'I've got a compliment for you, Anne,' said Diana. At least I think it must be a compliment because of the tone he said it in. Part of it was, anyhow.' There was an American sitting behind Jane and me, such a romantic-looking man with coal-black hair and eyes. Josie Pye says he is a distinguished artist, and that her mother's cousin in Boston is married to a man that used to go to school with him. Well, we heard him say, didn't we, Jane? Who is that girl on the platform with the splendid Titian hair? She has a face I should like to paint. There now, Anne. But what does Titian hair mean? Being interpreted, it means plain red, I guess, laughed Anne. Titian was a very famous artist who liked to paint red-haired women. "'Did you see all the diamonds those ladies wore?' sighed Jane. "'They were simply dazzling. Wouldn't you just love to be rich, girls?' "'We are rich,' said Anne staunchly. "'Why, we have sixteen years to our credit, and we're happy as queens, and we've all got imaginations, more or less. Look at that sea, girls, all silver and shadow and vision of things not seen.' We couldn't enjoy its loveliness any more if we had millions of dollars and ropes of diamonds. You wouldn't change into any of those women if you could. Would you want to be that white lace girl and wear a sour look all your life, as if you'd been born turning up your nose at the world? Or the pink lady, kind and nice as she is, so stout and short that you'd really no figure at all? Or even Mrs. Evans with that sad, sad look in her eyes? She must have been dreadfully unhappy sometime to have such a look. You know you wouldn't, Jane Andrews. I don't know, exactly, said Jane, unconvinced. I think diamonds would comfort a person for a good deal. Well, I don't want to be anyone but myself, even if I go uncomforted by diamonds all my life, declared Anne. I'm quite content to be Anne of Green Gables with my string of pearl beads. I know Matthew gave me as much love with them as ever went with Madame the Pink Lady's jewels. Lauren welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm excited. Thanks for coming back. Of course. anytime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have been starting these reflections by asking, what is your relationship to Anne? Mm-hmm. So were, are you someone who read the book as a kid? Are you newer to the book and the series in general?
1: Yeah. So I did not read Anne at all as a kid. Um, and actually, Anne is um, something that when my husband and I first started dating, like he would talk to me about quite a bit because Aww. his sister has a huge relationship with Anne of Green Gables. His sister also is a, um, is a redhead and very Anne-like. And then I also now have a daughter who is redhead and <laughs> very Anne-esque. So um, yeah, it was something that like his mother read to them when they were kids and they watched the miniseries all the time. So he was the one that introduced me to anne um, and his sister by constantly talking about it, and then also um, the Kate Beaton comics. I think oh. those were really like the first time I'd actually seen like Anne on the page. Mm-hmm. And then I recently read it um, because we had Dr. Kate Scarth from the L.M. Montgomery Institute on Bonnets at Dawn, and then we also had uh, Dr. Trina Frever, who's uh, an L.M. Montgomery scholar, on the show. And both of them were so enthusiastic about Anne. Like, it's, it's such a great episode because they just love Montgomery so, so much. Yes. I was like, I have to read these. I have to read these books. I so, listened
0: to that episode and I loved it. It was so delightful to hear oh them. Oh, my gosh. We
1: they're, recorded they're... for like two hours. It was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, I just recently read it. And then I was like, okay, like this book. And then I've been watching Anne with an E which I really enjoy and I'm really hoping that I will not like sort of start to conflate the two while we're Mm -hmm. talking about it (laughs) because I'm right in the middle.
0: So what do you think has uh, drawn you to Anne?
1: So I think it's interesting reading Anne at this point in my life and not as a child because right now I'm sort of, my daughter's two, but I'm sort of a new mom. And so I'm looking at it very much from a parent's perspective. And I I have a lot of feelings about Marilla (laughs) She's like who I, I think I'm most drawn to in the book. But um, I'm also a children's author and currently working on my third children's book. And so it's, it's also looking at the lessons that she's like sort of fusing into the text and just the way that she uses words and language. I think that has been really, really helpful to me, actually. Ellen Montgomery is a fantastic writer. <laughs> fantastic so yeah so I think it's it's really the writing and sort of maybe less the stories and the characters Uh, maybe if I had grown up with it I would feel a little bit more attached to this but I really do look at this book right now from a very technical standpoint I think
0: yes I was saying to someone or maybe I even said this on the podcast at one point but when i started reading it a couple months ago i was like i was not expecting this to be so well written like yeah, i yeah. knew that it was i remembered loving the stories and the characters but mm-hmm. i had the the opposite expectation that oh yeah i remember loving the stories and characters from when i was a kid i wasn't expecting to be like damn this description of the natural world and landscapes is the best i've ever
1: her nature writing <laughs> is off the charts. It's amazing. <laughs> it, it, he is one of my favorite nature writers, like, yes. up there with Dorothy Wordsworth.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. so beautiful and so alive. It's just incredible. Another question I like to ask is, what character um, do you identify with most strongly?
1: Is Marilla in there for you? Um, yeah. I Well, I think what's weird is... Um, I mean, Marilla reminds me a lot of my mother. My mother is extremely reserved. My mother was uh, an emergency room nurse practitioner. And then after her ER career, like 25 years, became a prison nurse. So (laughs) she has a very particular personality. (laughs) She's great in an emergency. She's very smart and calm. Um, She's not uh, very effusive. Mm -hmm. Um, and extremely maternal. (laughs) So um, a great woman, a great idol, great mother, but uh, my mother does keep a lot of her emotions on the other side of the fence. And so I've been thinking about that quite a bit as I've been reading Marilla because Marilla has all of those feelings for Anne but she also really wants to prepare Anne. And I think I've I've always felt that growing up. I may have been a bit of an Anne. I may have been very, very dramatic as a child. <laughs> um, and I think that always made my mother quite nervous. Because I was also very impulsive as well. Thinking back to my freshman year of college when I was like, I'm going to drop out because I'm going to become a Harlequin romance writer. So <laughs> <laughs> who needs this? Um, so... Yes. I think uh, Marilla is the one that I just keep my eye on the most. And also Marilla um, wasn't expecting to be a parent. I think that's the other thing. She doesn't really quite know what she's doing. And she's not used to letting people know that she doesn't know what she's doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So at least I have that benefit, I think, as a new mom. It's like, and especially in this day and age, you're really encouraged to be like, what's going on? What's happening? Is this normal? And to ask questions and to like, you know, work with other parents. But she really, you know, inherited She got Anne at 11, 12. Anne's a lot. She she had a background with a, filled with a lot of trauma. This is a lot of, a lot of work. And I feel, mm-hmm. I feel for Marilla
0: quite I know. a bit. I do too. And I feel for the way that she... She brings it on herself a little bit, but mm-hmm. the way that she takes a lot of the bulk of the labor, the difficult labor, whereas Matthew can just be like the fun loving one. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. That dynamic is so interesting too, like, cause <laughs> those are like constant negotiations too in parenting, like mm-hmm. who's going to do what, who's gonna, you know, my, my husband who is quite strict uh, personally, he's a marathon runner. He's very on schedule. He's like an engineer. He's very particular. He's very like my mother. We don't need to get on the couch with that one. I've had, <laughs> had talks with my therapist about that, but, um, it's interesting that he is much more like, he's much more of a Matthew, I think with our daughter, he's just really like, really lets this girl do whatever she wants. And I, I am the disciplinarian, which I never thought I would, I would be.
0: And it, it makes sense because Matthew also is a very hard worker. Um, mm-hmm. And, but, and, and it's hard because like kids do need that just like total acceptance and love, right? Like yes. they do need to just feel like you are, you are totally great how you are and everything's welcome and you're not too much and dream and explore. But like, then you also do need the the grounding and the reality yeah. and the discipline too. So yeah, it's very interesting.
1: It's true. Harlequin romance won't pay the bills. You do need <laughs> to find a day job.
0: But I will say <laughs> that I think like taking or, taking risks like that sometimes. sometimes I feel like comes from knowing that you came from such a safe
1: place with your mom. Yes, you absolutely. Know? I think that is absolutely true. And I think What's funny is that John and I have had, we've had quite a few discussions about this book lately as well. And he comes from a very different place growing up. He didn't have a stable and secure mm-hmm. upbringing the same way that I did. So right. it totally makes sense why he's so rigid uh, with his own life and his own schedule. But absolutely, I think you're you're totally on the money on yeah. that one.
0: I, I admire that. Like when Anne gets up on the roof, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually kind of admire it because I I wasn't like that. I was very, like, the opposite. Um, I was Ruby Gillis screaming bloody murder on the ground, you know. (laughs) Um, Okay, so do you have a favorite Anne mess-up?
1: Oh, I mean, Diana, like, her getting Diana drunk (laughs) is, like, my favorite thing of all time. (laughs) That's such an easy mistake, though, first of all. It wasn't even really her fault. It really wasn't. That was, I mean, that's pretty, There, you know, there's that and there's also the necklace. But I think Diana, mm. like, her and Diana getting drunk is, like, maybe my <laughs> second favorite chapter in this book. Because it was so, like, it was so harmless. They're having yeah. so much fun. And then, you know, she really she really pulls it out of the bag later and like changes everyone's, you know, perception of her. But um, yeah, I think that's it. Because that is something that would absolutely happen to me. Like (laughs) I'd be very excited to host someone at my, like I didn't get to have a ton of sleepovers or anything growing up. Um, But when I did, like I would go all out. I'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh, we need to have like all of these movies and i'm gonna make rice krispie treats and i'm gonna do this and do this and do, like i just really was like over the top mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole thing
0: so yeah
1: oh, yep. for sure,
0: that's a good one mm-hmm. um and this is connected to what we were just talking about earlier but is there a moment when you feel like an adult in Anne's life actually did a really good job with something um gave her good guidance uh approached mistake or something that she did you know in a in a good way um like a good bringing up
1: moment well i will say i mean it does go back to what we were just say- saying because i do think matthew really gives her that security and that um that she needs um he really recognizes who she is and how to parent her for like for who she is yeah. and Marilla also has her eye on more like the future, and societal expectations, uh, what people will just expect from a a woman like Anne. So, I mean, it is a good balance overall, but um, I do think just in general, like, even Matthew giving her the dress, right? Yeah. Like, he understands who she is and what she needs. Yeah. And um, that's, why, that's why you need to break out the tissues when you yeah. read this book. Yeah. He has a total belief in her, and Um, I think, you know, for Marilla to bringing up a girl like Anne, it just, it does bring up a lot of insecurities that Marilla has and also fears that she has been pushing down, I think for so long. Um, so it brings up a lot for her as a woman and yeah, but Matthew is, it's just, he's like a hundred percent there dream, dream parent. I know.
0: And I wonder if it's healing for him too, as someone who was so isolated for so long and like seen as so odd himself Mm -hmm. to be like I'm gonna take this odd little kid and just give her like complete total acceptance and if that's like actually kind of healing for him because then he gets to also have that complete acceptance from her
1: yeah absolutely I think so I think he really recognizes that Anne is like is also the glue between I mean you know him and Marilla have been existing they've been coexisting for a long time Mm -hmm. but um Once Anne comes into their lives, I think they start working together, start their relationship of obviously just improves Mm -hmm. overall. So yeah, I think, but he, he knows that he's got a good emotional IQ, that one. He does. (laughs)
0: Um, Okay. So last lightning round question. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a certain lesson or something that you take with you from the book? in your life that kind of comes back to you and that you, that inspires you in any way?
1: There, there is, there is one and it's a big one and it's actually the lesson in this chapter. Oh, so yay! we can, so we can get into the chapter if you want to, but I okay. actually, it was funny when you asked me which chapters and I was like, I think this one or this one. And then I went back and reread this one. I was like, ah, oh, this is the thing. And this is the thing that I actually want to like really work with my daughter on and mm. really sort of make sure I'm keeping an eye on when I write for children as well. Mm. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Chapter 33. All right. Let's,
0: we can segue. It's a good segue and we'll get to it. I mean, the chapter opens with another breathtaking description of summer in Avonlea and you know, all that, yeah. what we were just talking about, but then also we get this description of Anne's room. <gasps> yes. That is so delightful. I love that it's framed as like well she thought she wanted this like kind of ridiculous (laughs) opulence but now she has she has created um this sweet dainty nest and it just sounds so like light and airy and cozy and there's elements of nature and Miss Stacy's photo is like in a place of honor.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm so glad you brought up the room because this is like my number. I love this description and I think like if I were to assign if I were to like teach a writing class, by the way listeners I'm open to teaching a writing class Mm -hmm. if anyone wants to email me, but um, I would assign this chapter and the room description is part of it because this is such a great piece of character development because we have a 16 year old Anne here so she's older, she's been there a little bit and exactly what you said it starts off with like what her expectations or her dreams were for this room with the like velvet cushions and like just a room fit for a princess Mm -hmm. versus the reality of what it is and what she's grown into and what she's come to love and what she's come to love is different than what she expected Mm -hmm. and she does Ellen Montgomery does this in a paragraph and it's such a good piece of character development it's mind-blowing and all using the room as this, you know, as this metaphor.
0: Yeah, and it, it. Ha- it harkens back to when she went to visit Miss Barry for the first time, and she was mm-hmm. finally in this grand house, and she's like, oh, I don't actually like it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? I yeah. um, relate to this so much, too, as someone with maybe an overactive imagination and That gets caught up in fantasies and then sometimes the real world is slightly disappointing for me which is something i actually love about marilla because she really knows that about anne right she really knows that the real world is going to be quite a disappointment for this girl but um yeah but just that paragraph where she's saying she's really come to terms with the room and she's really loving her life in that moment i'm like yeah fantastic
0: i'm curious about what was the first space that you felt like you made your own
1: Ooh, I had so many terrible apartments, <laughs> which is what I'm going back to. I mean, it probably, though, even going back further, I, we had this house in Schomburg and um, it had a walk-in, I got the, I got the room that had the giant walk-in closet because I was a very spoiled only child at that point, <laughs> but the walk-in closet, like I refused to make a closet, I made it like this playroom. And um, I was in there just for hours with like, my dolls and adventures. And so yeah, I think it was maybe that closet. Mm. That was like the best thing ever. And then my parents were like, fine, to let me have that room after a while, because they were like, she just goes in there and really minds her own business. And (laughs) she's (laughs) out of the way. And that's great. So yeah, probably probably that place. And then I, I would say it wasn't until I was in my late 20s and my husband and I got this loft in Ravenswood where we always wanted to live. And this is like the Anne and me coming out. I really wanted to live in this place because it was like covered, it was an old map factory and it was covered in ivy. Yeah. And it was so romantic. And I was like, oh, I just want to live in that map factory that's by <laughs> the train tracks. And then we like happened to get an apartment there and um, I think it was the first time as an adult, like I really spent time like decorating and making it home because I think it was the first time I also was like, oh, this is going to be my home and not Mm -hmm. just like an apartment for a year or two. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those, those two spaces Mm -hmm. are pretty special.
0: But I love that image of you turning the walk-in closet into your play space especially because closets and wardrobes and stuff like in literature I always as a kid I was just waiting for the day that my closet like opened into another world
1: yes (laughs) there was a movie I watched a lot as a kid where like the kids went through like a mirror Mm -hmm. in the closet like into Mm -hmm. a different world and I was like it's gonna happen yeah for for sure
0: yeah I didn't I didn't um move out of my parents' home into my first apartment until two years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, I've shared the apartment with a roommate, but now uh, in a little less than two months, I'll be moving into my own apartment. And I'm just so excited for it to just, to finally be like, oh, like you're saying, like, this is my space and this is my home. And like, what can I do with it?
1: It's going to be interesting. Oh, it's the best. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I highly recommend it. (laughs) I'm excited. Um,
0: Okay. So I kind of want to talk about the exchange with her and Diana, which happens
1: in the room, about their looks. Her and Diana, there's a lot going on. These dresses and everything. So that's maybe another reason why I do like this chapter as well, because their relationship and – Diana especially coming over to like help her get ready and I mean that's something that feels so classic right out of best friends Mm -hmm. you know and um I do have a line from that that I actually really quite liked um when Anne was saying she wanted to wear the blue muslin and Diana's like no 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 it's far too stiff um and makes you look too dressed up but the organdy mm-hmm. seemed as if it grew on you, which was so poetic. I know. Diana the poet. Diana would be a great stylist today.
0: Yes. Yes. I love that um, we also get, because there's not a ton of character development for Diana in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, but there is that line about how she's gotten a reputation for her taste. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice to know that even though she's probably not going to get the education that Anne's going to get. And like her family isn't looking at her in that way. There's something in life that she's like good at and has an eye for and like can put to use and like, and she can use it to connect with people.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: And that description is so I could, even though I didn't really know what the dress looked like, I knew exactly what the dress looked like.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's funny cuz i was like oh wait a minute i need to look at this fabric mm-hmm. <laughs> what is and it is very like loose and flowy and mm-hmm. romantic mm-hmm. and it does fit the poem it fits the setting all very well it's like diana knew exactly what was going to happen yeah diana should take that skill and profit from it yeah she's the tan France of Avonlea she really really is (laughs) that just when she said it looks as if it grew on you it's such a specific I know thing like when it's such an intimate moment when you are getting ready with your best friend for whatever occasion your Mm -hmm. you know your wedding your prom or just you know whatever and your best friend knows exactly what your insecurities are as far as like the way you dress or your body or, you know, whatever. And so they say exactly the right thing for you to get going. I feel like my <laughs> wedding was very much that. because <laughs> yeah. I, I did, I did this great thing where I just tried on my wedding dress like the day before my wedding. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, I don't know if I like it. Is it okay? And my best friend was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> she knew exactly what to say to like talk me down off the ledge. But, um, Yeah, I I did clock that moment because I thought it was really lovely and sweet.
0: I also love how when Diana's like, oh, you have such a good figure. I'm just a dumpling. But Mm -hmm. she says um, that Diana looks at Anne with like unenvious admiration when she's Mm -hmm. saying that. And I thought that that was such an important word. Like the way that Diana's expressing it isn't in in a jealous way. Like there's not, there's no like, jealousy between the two. They just love each other. And then Diana, of course, I mean, Anne, of course, is like, but you have dimples and I'll never yes. have dimples.
1: And oh, the and dent that description, in the, cream. the dent in the cream. My God. Holy moly. These two, like, have trade such specific compliments. I Do you know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you've read um, Amy Poehler's book. Oh, I, I, I did, but it was a while ago. Yeah, um, which I think I think it's yes you can i think am i wrong yes please yes please i think something Yes. Something. so yes is definitely in the title <laughs> um there is a great bit of that book that i think about all the time and i believe she had like a smart girls at the party video about it as well um about like thinking about your own insecurities and um i will get like really hardcore self-critical. And I will say like, Oh my God, my, you know, I need to lose some insane amount of weight or I need to do this. I need to do that. I can't hardly look at myself. I'll get very, you know, very down on myself. And um she says, you know, like look at yourself the way that your best friend would look at you. Like would your best friend say, yeah, you're right, Lauren, you're completely unlovable because of your weight. And I'm like, no, Hannah would absolutely never say that to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would yeah. say, I love you the way you are and like what can i do to support you yeah so yeah so i think about that constantly when i'm spiraling and um yeah clearly montgomery was on that same path as well
0: yes so we have this like lovely moment between anne and diana and then marilla comes in and i love the description of her as a gaunt figure um Mm -hmm. with grayer hair and no fewer angles but a much softer face and Diana's like, doesn't she look lovely? And Marilla says, basically, yes, but. She's like, yeah, I right. guess she looks fine, but she's going to catch a cold. And, like, just starts, again, like, catastrophizing. And mm-hmm. I just find it so fascinating how she instantly, like, has to put up a barricade. Has yes. to, like, cannot just be like, you look great, Anne. Um, and then even though she walked, Marilla walks downstairs and she's thinking proudly about how sweet Anne looked, Anne now is like anxious and she says, I wonder if it is too damp for my dress. Yeah. And it's like, it just made me so sad that while I understand what why Marilla is doing this and where it comes from and how there's there are good parts to her grounding in reality, like it does have an effect on Anne too mm-hmm. that makes her anxious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Marilla is so... Well, she's so human, right? Because I think the easiest thing to do to show her character growth would be to have her come in and say, "You look beautiful," yeah, <laughs> or, or say say the things that are on her mind. Because then she also drops this quote from Aurora Lee, which um, really is one moonbeam, one moonbeam from the forehead to the crown, which is really lovely. And very romantic mm-hmm. and very Anne-esque of her, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that Marilla, you know, sees Anne and immediately is like, oh, and is just getting caught up in her own, her own head, her own feelings. I think Marilla and Anne are actually a lot more alike mm. than Marilla would care to admit. So then she immediately put, puts up this wall and is like, you're gonna catch a cold. Which is which is good parenting instincts, right? Your <laughs> safety above all else. Right. But yeah. Yeah. She does put up that wall. And then Anne's like, wait a minute. Should I check myself? Should I, is this practical? Right. right?"
0: Yeah. I love that you pointed out that line of poetry that Marilla thinks about when she sees her, because yeah, it's like that whole, just in those few pages, I'm just constantly bowled over by what Montgomery can do in such a short, in such short
1: Mm -hmm. phrases,
0: sentences, whatever. But, um, there's so much poetry coming from all of the women, and they're yes. it's like so
1: sensual. Um, yes, I just love it. I have to wonder too for Montgomery because she was like a newspaper woman. I wonder if that's where she um, learned to just just to be just to be con- so concise. Yeah, because that's the thing about writing for children. Like I'm working on a manuscript right now, and. From the publisher, they said it should be between 500 and 1,000 words. Wow. And that's not a lot of words. And you really have to figure out how you're going to get from A to B in just a few words. In mm-hmm. just a, like a short little piece uh, of, of quotation like that, that's so romantic, that's pointing at like another redheaded orphan, which is Aurora-, Aurora Lee is. It's, it's, it's so loaded in such mm-hmm. a small, small space oh yeah good job Montgomery
0: good job Montgomery (laughs) and kind of scoffs when Diana tells her about what or when Diana says what if you get an encore what will you read and she's like oh no but secretly she's like already envisioning telling Matthew about it
1: yeah totally
0: I was curious if you do you relate to that idea of on the outside telling people like, oh, no, no, no. I don't expect anything from this thing that I'm doing and internally having like a vision. Yeah,
1: totally. I think I'm constantly, I mean, like Anne, like this chapter, like trying to negotiate like my expectations versus, or my, or not even expectations, like my desires versus mm-hmm. what I think will happen in reality. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to check myself. I think especially being like a freelancer, <laughs> That's a very, it's, it's necessary. I think anyone in a creative field, I think would, would feel the same way as well. You always want something to go really well. You always want a book to be really well reviewed. You secretly hope it's going to, you know, get on the New York Times bestseller list or whatever, but you're really constantly trying to check your expectations. Um, Not just so you won't feel like a fool in front of others, but I think also to help you Carry on with the next project. Yes. As well. So, oh, yeah. That's something I do on the daily.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's such an interesting negotiation because it can just be so, it can be motivating to imagine, like, oh, what if I do get the encore? But then it could also paralyze you if you think about that too much, right? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And then you're like, oh, God, well, what if I don't perform this as well as I perform this? Yeah. Absolutely. You just, you could play head games with yourself yeah. and just spiral. So I think what she's doing here is smart. This mm-hmm. is a good, good bit of development, good bit of growth for Anne.
0: Hedging her bets a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. One of the things that I really liked, it's kind of a small moment, but the carriage ride over or horse and buggy, whatever mm-hmm. on the ride over and we find out that Billy Asks Anne to sit in the front with him, and she doesn't really want to because she wants to be in the back, like chatting and laughing with her girlfriends. But she's Mm -hmm. like, okay, fine, I'll sit with him. And I'm always just fascinated by Anne's relationship to boys and men because, as romantic and dreamy as she is, she is not really that romantic about men. Yeah. And she is so, she so values friendship more than anything. She's never like ditching Diana. Or like a guy or right, something.
1: Right.
0: Um, it's something that I really admire about her. I wonder if it has some roots in her history of trauma with abusive mm-hmm. men. Um, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Because something I don't like about my own character is that I'm pretty sure at 16, whether I, li- whether I liked Billy or not, I'd be like, this boy wants my attention. I'm like, see ya, girls. I'm sitting yeah. with him. <laughs> I don't like that, but to be honest.
1: I know. I I kind of actually, weirdly yesterday I was talking about this. I don't know what I was talking about it in relation to. I think like, I was talking to my husband about it and about like, because we were talking about like teenage Audrey when that happened. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, God, I wish I could really tell her that like, I just did so many things that were just like such a waste of time, like (laughs) revolving around boys that was just like I mean like (laughs) all of those long talks on the phone with Ronnie Gino Balconi about weather because he wanted to be a meteorologist (laughs) like I mean what was that (laughs) so (laughs) stuff like that like I didn't care about tornadoes I mean what what was I doing I should have been out like being 16 and having fun with my friends and that sort of thing so um yeah I think that's very interesting about Anne. I mean, it does keep the tension going. Like we're talking about like a technical writing aspect, right? So, you know, it does keep you following her. Like when is she she going to get with Gilbert? (laughs) Like you're really wondering like what is going to happen. Right. Um, But yeah, I think that is one of the interesting things about Anne because I think I probably would be a little bit more flirtatious. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is very much like on this track i think it also has to do with her wanting to have a, a, a some sort of career some sort of future mm-hmm. studies and she i think and also pleasing matthew and marilla and being sort of this model student and daughter and so i do think she might view boys as you know a distraction from her ultimate goals but right yes her um her friendship really isn't tested right that way with men which i would i would like to see yeah younger years but it's
0: just very grounded of her like as dreamy Mm -hmm. as she is is. it's it's so grounded and down to earth and like her priorities are just so on point it's just um but that's why i thought i I, in the situations with gilbert i always was like okay yes we need to keep the will they like you know not Mm -hmm. even yeah i guess will they won't they going but it comes up with really every mention of a boy like yeah charlie sloan and then billy i was like okay billy he's he's got a car i mean not a car mm-hmm. but you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> <She> could... <laughs>
1: totally um he absolutely you know, admires her but he just yeah. and I, what i mean he's quite sweet in that moment mm-hmm. uh that actually does remind me quite it's it's like an austin moment i think because we don't know a ton about billy right but we do know that he's very stoic and he's not going to let Anne like see his feelings right And um, in just a few strokes, you know, we sort of get his character on this carriage ride. So
0: he's a simple country boy. Yeah, it's sweet. It is sweet. And um, I like what you said about when you talk about, you know, the you didn't care about tornadoes. Um, Not at all. The biggest thing (laughs) with that is I relate to that very deeply. And for me, it's like all that time I spent listening to him talk about tornadoes. It wasn't that for me, but I'll use that as, as a in. Mm-hmm. I wasn't learning about or doing what I was passionate about. Right. Like, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's fine to listen to someone else be kind, whatever, but, right. but when you're putting all that time into that person and listening to what he's interested in, you're not following your own interests. So. Exactly.
1: I just, yeah, I, I don't know why that has like really stayed with me too. This has been many years ago, but yeah, you're exactly right. And that's what I would prefer for my daughter is to just do, do what you want to do mm-hmm. and say something that my mother would say to me. Like there will be time for that. There will be time for boys <laughs> yeah. later. Just, just focus yeah. on yourself and your friends.
0: Yeah. Easier said than done sometimes. Right. <laughs> um, so, so Anne gets to the hotel and she suddenly is just like, I'm a total country bumpkin.
1: Mm.
0: I'm a, no longer a big fish in a small pond. And she just feels this, like, shame. Um, and ironically, I love that we, again, we get this, like, little hint from Montgomery that that's not actually how people are seeing her. Yeah. Um, there's a note about, like, the girl in lace or whatever who's, like, surprised when Anne's name is called mm-hmm. because she didn't think she was, like, a country girl, I guess, but that's how she feels, and um she just almost completely almost completely shuts down and I can relate to like, I much prefer to be a big fish in a small pond
1: mm-hmm. Sure <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> that's what,
0: what <laughs> yeah what your what your relationship is with that um, Is there a significant experience you can think of where you went from a small pond to a bigger pond
1: and were just like a deer in headlights. Ooh. Is there? That's a good question. Actually, it's a very good question. I do feel um, often out of place, so I think that's a that's mm-hmm. a feeling that's always been with me mm-hmm. for a really long time. Which is why I actually really one of the reasons why I actually like this chapter because I do I love whenever like sort of class becomes an issue too because mm-hmm. that's very much what's happening here. She's it's not just that they're all maybe older or more better educated or you know what it is this money it's yes. money she comes in and she's like there's silk there's diamonds yep oh my god like so i think that's something that i really um i think about and i pay attention to in literature constantly because it's such a good like visual trick as well cuz we're talking about you know Anne's dress and maybe how it might be slightly out of fashion the pearl beads which are quaint and lovely mm-hmm. and loaded with meaning um versus a diamond necklace. Mm-hmm. It's just like visually you, you just you get it right away what's going on here. Um I think for me though, it's 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 interesting because I feel like maybe maybe traveling on my own is a good example of this. I'm trying to think if there's like been a performance example of this though. Give me a second here. Because that is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's something I
0: avoid. Do you? I, really I, I I notice or I,
1: tr-
0: yeah, I think I tried, mm-hmm. I really try to avoid being in a big pond because I, my shame gets activated so quickly. Like my mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, my, and just o- sheer overwhelm, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it is something that I notice in myself interesting i think i i I like that and i can understand that um i think because i am so used to being uncomfortable i'm constantly putting myself in in like in situations where i'm uncomfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i'm almost like just always living my life in this baptism by fire Mm -hmm. type situation Mm -hmm. um which is not great not a great way to live i don't know if i recommend it Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i think that's the way i've always sort of done things I'm like okay well you know what I'm gonna just I've always wanted to go to Italy so I'm just gonna get on a plane and go Mm -hmm. I don't know Italian I don't know like this is very uncomfortable yeah (laughs) but I've always been um I've never really found my comfort zone I think maybe in a way Mm -hmm. and so like this is just the way Mm -hmm. to 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 live again been through a lot of therapy on this this weird cycle that I'm on yes but um I think that's why I like this moment so much too. It's like, I'm like, oh, I've been there a million times. And I've gone, oh, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing here. Here's a really good example. Okay. So my mother-in-law works for United and my husband and I, especially in our early twenties, we traveled all the time. We just go to the airport and fly standby somewhere. And who knows? Who knows? And I do love planning. Like, don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. Hannah and I have really absurd Excel sheets for whenever we do our literary road trips.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there is something really just thrilling, right? About just getting on a plane and not knowing. So we were actually trying to go to a friend's wedding. We couldn't get there. Um and so we're like, okay, where can we go this one time? So we're like, okay, there's a flight open to Jackson Hole. <laughs> we have no idea what's in Jackson Hole. <laughs> We were actually going to California and had packed um, lots of, you know, dresses and swimsuits and whatnot, but we're like, we'll go. Jackson Hole is like full of like really wealthy people. Mm. We did not know that. Mm -hmm. The hotels were actually quite expensive. Again, this is not a great way to live your life, but it was such an interesting adventure for us to like go there and say like, what happens here? Who are you? Where should we go eat? And uh, what should we do? I mean, it wasn't the best vacation ever, but it was really (laughs) fun and interesting. And I think especially for when we were first getting to know each other, Mm. this was such an interesting experience as a couple to just try to figure something out together Mm. and like have an adventure together. So, so yeah, I know I, I'm doing, I do that a lot though. And it serves me, I mean, it serves me with my work, especially I think for some of the things that I do professionally, you have to be sort of, you just have to like charge in yes. and, and, and take, take charge and you have no idea what you're doing and you yes. actually might not be <laughs> super qualified. And I, am the inside, I have a lot of imposter sen- syndrome, but on the outside, I'm like, I'm just going to do it.
0: Yes. It's also something that's been interesting about this time of doing a lot of things remotely is that right. I, feel a, I feel a sense of more comfort to just like go for certain things that I'm going to be doing remotely because I can remove at least the physical discomfort of, yes am I wearing the right thing? Like the physical shame of like, do I look right? Am I, can people see something about me just from the way, my body
1: language or my dress or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Again, this is something my husband and I were talking about the other day, and something you mentioned earlier too of like, I grew up with not a lot of supervision, <laughs>
0: we'll okay. say,
1: but a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was that. And I think he maybe was the right, he didn't have a lot of supervision or a lot of resources. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think for me that that security where I do have that, like, let's just try it. What'll happen? <laughs> right. <laughs> Who knows is because I have such a, like a, that background of like, whatever, it's going to be fine. Right. um But at the same time, I think there's always been this sort of like uh, component for me being the only sort of black girl in my school yes. growing up. I think I've always felt like people were looking at me and like wondering where I came from and you know making judgments about me and my hair or whatever so I'm like okay people are already saying that so they're doing it and I can't control it so I might as well just like sort of be me but I do internalize a lot of that Mm. still as well but um it's funny because my husband who is a white man who didn't have that Mm -hmm. (laughs) growing up Um, but he didn't have a lot of resources and he like internalized those things very differently. Like we were just talking about like an ice cream truck the other day Mm -hmm. and he was like, Oh, like when I was a kid, you know, I could only have like the cheapest ice cream. right?" And like, he was just like, I just like lived for the day when I could like, I don't know, get something expensive from an ice cream truck. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Whoa, that really, really hit me. Yeah. (laughs) And I do feel like, Anne of Green Gables is like full of some of those moments yes in here and I that's why he would love to like read this book to our daughter and like sort of yes have some of those discussions because um that's very much it's very different than the way I grew up I mm. will admit and like but it is something I really want to ha- like talk to my daughter about yes. like those feelings so yeah
0: the moment where Anne is on stage she gets stage fright she freezes And then she sees Gilbert and she's like, Oh, it's all great. He is not going to see me fail. Does, does does people watching you or competition, does that energize you or do you fold?
1: (laughs) I think it used to energize me more. I just think in general, I have a lot less energy these days. Mm -hmm. um, It's an interesting word right now, but yeah, I think 2020 has like sort of maybe zapped a lot of my energy. Um, but I, th- that moment is hilarious. It also brought me back to uh, like Roxanne Gay's essay on like having a nemesis. Mm,
0: I haven't read having, that, Oh, that sounds like, great.
1: Like having an enemy to spur you on essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think maybe in my twenties, I definitely would like look at other people's careers or what they had and that would very much spur me on. Like, how do I get that? I'm a very ambitious person. Um, for sure. And um, I think over the past couple years, I've really worked to not tame that, um, maybe make it work for me better, I should say. Mm-hmm. Because I think in a lot of ways you can fall into that. It's never going to be enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I definitely think in my early twenties, that was one of the tools that I used. Okay. How did she get that? I should do that or I I can do it better or, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, so I recognized that moment for sure. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm glad she made it work for her. She made it work for her. (laughs) And that description of stage fright was so great because I, um, I have, a, I have a lot of problems, public speaking. Mm. I, I do it all the time. <laughs> I can't stop. It's funny. There is actually, there's an episode where I like leave in this like outtake where Hannah and I are talking about it and I'm like, Oh, I'm so nervous. Like, I don't even, I don't really, I don't want to do this. And she's like, it's really funny that you say that. Cause you just like, can't shut up. Like you don't stop. <laughs> I'm like, I know. Whereas she is someone who actually gets very energized talking in front of a a crowd like Mm -hmm. that she loves she loves nothing more than being on stage Mm -hmm. um I am like oh I'm very I'm not I'm not super keen on it but Mm. I do it all the time but um yeah oh to see an enemy in the audience and then just want to succeed and then not really an enemy too right I mean there's a lot going on with her and Gilbert right right
0: And I love that she misses, she, she interprets Gilbert's smile as triumphant and taunting Mm -hmm. and totally misses that Josie actually is smiling at her like that because she arrived with Gilbert. Um, she's so tunnel vision that she actually misses
1: that. Yes. But. And flips his, like, and flips it completely too. Right. Right. And and very willful.
0: That's what I love about this. Um, there's so much in this chapter about perceptions, like our Mm perception of ourselves, and other our perceptions of other people and what we think they're perceiving of us like Anne is actually wrong a lot in this chapter about what how people perceive her um and even I think it's kind of like that moment with Billy like she's so quick to just be like oh he can't keep up with me he's not smart enough but she probably you know she shouldn't marry the guy but she doesn't Mm -hmm. even give him a chance really to like have a conversation with her so it
1: is interesting but yeah she doesn't even think stop to think that he might just be too nervous to yeah. like that she might be intimidating
0: right i think that's exactly. the thing
1: yes. and um i i mean i can relate with that too mm-hmm. because i've been told by some dudes that i am a bit intimidating <laughs> for various reasons but um yeah that doesn't cross her mind right a little bit right uh, that misreading of gilbert and also i do have a quote from that stage fright bit because I thought it was so beautiful Um, when Montgomery says everything was so strange, so brilliant, so bewildering, the rows of ladies in evening dress, the critical faces, the whole atmosphere of wealth and culture about her. Um, I do like how it's almost like the prose is almost breathless. Mm. And it's really like the thing about *Anne of Green Gables, as you will well know, is that you can read it, like you can read it aloud. It's so conversational and, um, yeah, just that moment. I was like, yes, you brought me right into the moment. Yes, a very short sentence and also brought in this atmosphere of wealth and culture that Mm -hmm. she is not used to and just like puts her right out of place. It's great.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's funny. Like I definitely, I'll definitely get nervous, but I, it's kind of interesting to hear you say like the kind of how things are flipped. Like I will get nervous, but I would rather be at a bar like singing in the band like when I used to do more music stuff than just like hanging out you know um like trying to like talk to a stranger in a bar you know what I mean yeah I'm total opposite (laughs) I would
1: like absolutely like just go up to any stranger in a bar and have a conversation with them but getting on stage I'd be like absolutely not
0: I love the end of the chapter how you know like Anne is like the belle of the ball kind of, you know, she like gives this great performance. Everyone's like, oh, we love you. She gets introduced to all these fancy rich people. They have dinner. But the moment when she steps out into the calm white moonshine radiance, Mm -hmm. she breathed deeply and looked into the clear sky beyond the dark boughs of the firs. And... Montgomery writes, it was good to be out again in the purity and silence of the night, how great and still and wonderful everything was with the murmur of the sea sounding through it and the darkling cliffs beyond like grim giants guarding enchanted coasts. Yeah. I could like, crazy. So, it's so beautiful. And I just think like Anne is such a wood nymph. Like she's mm-hmm. such a, she's such a little pixie sprite, like she can shine on the stage and she has a good time but she's so happy to be out again in, yes. and connected to nature and um and i can like it's such a visceral thing like i i can so i can just feel that sense of when you go to you go to some party or performance or something and then like that feeling of stepping out stepping out of the house yeah. or out of the theater and into the quiet again um, mm-hmm. and for people who are more introverted, like that sigh of like,
1: ah,
0: it's, like over. it's so good. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I was wondering yeah. how that all
0: landed with you.
1: Oh, it's so pretty, isn't it? I mean, it's so good. Cause she, yeah, it's such a sigh of relief and she steps back into her comfort zone, which is nature and you get that beautiful. I mean, that whole paragraph is great. I think there's, towards the end, it says, like, look at the sea, girls, all silver and shadow and vision of things not seen. I mean, it's just, like, poetry. Yes. Um, it's it's interesting because I feel like in this moment, Anne is at her best and in her element, whereas I think everyone else would assume that she was on at her element and mm-hmm. at her best on stage. Mm-hmm. But I think it's quite flipped. It's almost like it's really done something for her and it's really... Um, so a few things have clicked. Like she has a few Mm -hmm. sort of realizations at the end of this chapter at the end of that performance that, um, make you go, Oh, Anne. Yes. What a, what a little lady you are. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really lovely. It is nice, isn't it? When you like do a thing and it's over Yes, (laughs) and it was great
0: Yes, and now
1: you, it's over.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We've gotten the sense in like a couple of chapters before, like that, that idea of Anne not using a word like epoch anymore, you know, like she's Mm -hmm. gotten quieter is like, I feel like she has more of a reverence for silence. Um, like she, as she's gotten older, she's not trying to fill up the space with, she still talks a lot, but not Mm -hmm. as much. Like she has more of a reverence. I feel like, um, because she has so much depth to her, And now that she's more mature, she can kind of see like mystery and like appreciate that depth and mystery, kind of with the way she describes the sea. So I just feel this kind of like maturation into her thriving in silence
1: as opposed to always making a lot of noise, you know? Yes. I think that's a very good observation. I think someone like Anne too, like she really fills that silence as a way to, um, I mean, obviously, she wants everyone to like her. She wants everyone to feel comfortable. She wants to like, she wants to get to know everyone. She wants to know all about you. Like she really, in the early days, it's quite mm-hmm. overwhelming. Um, but yes, I think now it's like, she's she's much more comfortable with herself. So she mm-hmm. can let go of that a little bit as well. I relate to that again no surprise there probably of trying to sort of manage a conversation or fill the silence in a room at a party to just make sure everyone's okay (laughs) instead of like paying attention to my own needs yes I do that a lot yeah I do that a lot Mm -hmm. that's very difficult not to
0: (laughs) I try to make myself just like breathe and like give it a beat because mm-hmm. I I definitely, I just am constantly trying to make sure everyone's comfortable. And I will, like, do whatever conversational somersaults I need to do to, like. <laughs> to get everyone in a good place. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. It's very hard to learn how to check in with yourself. I'm yes. Still, I'm still working on that.
0: Yes. Me too. I think I will be. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, let's let's get to the.
0: The like just shining jewel of the chapter, I think, which is this whole um, little speech from Anne at the end Mm -hmm. um, about basically the interior riches that she and her friends have and that she doesn't want to be anyone but herself, right? It's so, it feels like the most grown up chapter in the book when she Mm -hmm. has this speech. So I would just love to hear your thoughts and-
1: Oh, man. Well, she's got – this is – I have a lot of – I have a lot. I could write a dissertation on this last bit, actually. Um, Because first of all, just off the top, it uh, echoes what Montgomery is doing in those first few paragraphs at the top of the chapter with the room so well. Mm. Same thing. We're just, like, doing a callback, a really lovely, neat – call back and this is such a good trick so that's why i'm like oh my god if you are an aspiring writer of any kind of fiction especially children's fiction read this chapter because it's not repetitive and it doesn't like drill the lesson into your head with a hammer it's subtle it's simple and it's just so neatly done um but essentially the other gals are like oh my god could you believe all the diamonds and the silks and all the wealth and there was an American millionaire you guys Mm -hmm. and it's just so overwhelming and they're getting caught up in what would it be like to have all that money what what would it be like to have all of those resources could if I could just stay in a hotel all summer and eat chicken salad which I believe (laughs) yes just like sleep in and eat chicken salad and wear beautiful dresses and diamonds how amazing that would be and who hasn't had like those feelings and those desires. And, and of all people, you would expect to really get caught up in that, but she doesn't. And um, God, what does she say? Like when she looks at the sea, she's just like, look at the sea girls, all silver and shadow and vision of things, not seen. We couldn't enjoy its loveliness anymore. If we had millions of dollars and ropes of diamonds. So, guys, like, we have all we need. We have yep. each other. We've had this wonderful night. We couldn't enjoy this anymore if we were millionaires. Yes. And I'm like, whoa. Yes. Great. Beautiful. And that's the same thing with the room, right? She loves the room. It's her space. She actually wouldn't enjoy it anymore if it were filled with velvet and silk and, you know, all of these things that she thought she, she wanted to make her happy. Yes
0: and i love Beautiful. that it's not a dismissal of it's not this puritanical like you shouldn't want anything in life you know yeah. there there's a simplicity without denying how good the stuff of life can be that it matters that she has a room that she has made her own that reflects her personality that mm-hmm. makes her feel good but what she loves the most is like looking out the window at the sunrise every morning. Like there's Mm -hmm. this constant. And um, that's something you can't buy. Right. It's just this constant, like, I like that Montgomery is never like punishing Anne for wanting things Mm -hmm. or saying, you know, being a Puritan about it, but that there's just a steadiness and a sense of perspective that is so wise and so, Mm -hmm. I just feel like Anne, yes, has like grown up so much in this chapter in the sense of steadiness that she has and the appreciation that she has because she does have a good life. Yeah. And and maybe she can recognize that more than her friends because she, until she was 11, she didn't have, you know, she didn't have a cheerful room and the ability to go to a concert and, you know, whatever. She Mm -hmm. didn't have really anything. So...
1: She yeah. finds that middle way. It's um it, it's so beautiful. Yeah, you're I love what you said too about the writing as well, because yeah, Montgomery's not like super didactic or preachy, which is very hard when you go back and read children's literature from like the Victorian era, mm-hmm. right? It's all about teaching, it's all about the lesson, it's mm-hmm. all like it's not humanized, it's not coming from the child's perspective, oftentimes. Um, You know, Louisa May Alcott, who I do love dearly, mm-hmm. um, gets quite preachy. She's quite mm-hmm. outside of it. But this is very much grounded in, like, a real person's, like, life and their desires. Um, and it's it, it feels right. Like, it feels right for Anne at this moment to be like, wait a minute. No. Yes. <laughs> Guys, we have what we, what we need. Each yes. other. I, you know, it reminds me. <laughs> quite a bit of um, Hannah and I like to do this thing where we get terrible food and we line up like four or five episodes of the real housewives of whatever, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Beverly Hills, New York, um, Potomac, any of them. Mm -hmm. And we sit down and we watch them together. We love watching reality TV about rich people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times we're like, Oh God, I wish we could stay in a house like that or oh god if we could if we could go on a trip like that like oh the fun that we would have and mm-hmm. oh we wish we had all these this money but it's just funny the thing that we comment about the most is how unhappy everyone yes. is and we're like god we are so much happier sitting here eating barbecue with each other watching this spectacle than we yes. would be living it and yes. so yeah that brought me back to those moments
0: And sometimes constraints can be so helpful and having a little bit less makes you creative. And like, you know, the whole necessity is the mother of invention. It's like people do really interesting things sometimes when they can't just like
1: snap their fingers. Yes. I absolutely believe that. I mean, I work better Mm -hmm. under those circumstances. I like that this publisher was like, this is what we're doing with this book and it's going to be between 500 and 1,000 words. And that's not a lot and that's, but you know, good luck with that. So it's (laughs) had, it's had me reading more poetry. It's had Mm -hmm. me being more thoughtful about my word choices, Mm -hmm. had me really revising myself over and over again. It's been a much more interesting and better creative project for me um, rather than, than them coming and saying it can be whatever you want because then it's just like oh my god i don't <laughs> i don't know i i am a person that you you need to give me limitations
0: yeah same. um I,
1: I can't i can't thrive otherwise so yeah i
0: had to when i first started writing poetry like i would just make up games for myself with different constraints like make it into a puzzle um and try different forms mm. because otherwise i just never would have and now i don't really need to it gets you going
1: too yes. yeah mm-hmm. Because otherwise you're just like, what do, how do I pull this? What did Mary Shelley say? Um, in Frankenstein, I'm going to butcher this quote, but she's basically talking about creation out of the void. Like it doesn't happen out of the void. Right. Or it happens out of chaos. And I feel that way. of yes. Chaos and rules. That's what yes. I mean.
0: And also like, I feel like anything I make is like a, mo- a mosaic of all these other things other people have made that I love. It's like just taking little fragments from, like, and and if you think of it that way, you never have to be completely original because by putting together things that you haven't seen put together before, you make something Mm -hmm. unique. But you don't have to like invent it out of nowhere, and you can't, and you won't. No,
1: you can't. (laughs) Yeah, you absolutely won't. I think I love embracing all of those influences. I Mm -hmm. think. And Anne, you do see that. You see that Ellen Montgomery is a huge reader. I mean, we're referencing, you know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning in here. Mm-hmm. Um, there, She's got a lot of references to the Bronte sisters and her work and Jane Eyre. And so, yeah, like embracing those things and also obviously her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all coming through yes. in this text. And they're things that she loves. You can tell that she loves them. And that's what's it's just... That makes it extra special to me, I mm-hmm. think so I'm curious
0: in the very beginning, we talked about I asked about a lesson that you take <laughs> from Anne um, is there Is that something that comes from this ending section of the book?
1: Yes, so I think it's a, it's a couple of things. one is being in the moment, mm-hmm. and Anne is very much in the moment after that um After that speech, after that speech, after her performance, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, which does happen, right? Like a big thing happens in your life and like suddenly it kind of brings you into yourself. Right. So she's very much, she's out there. She's with her friends. Everything's great. She's appreciating that moment. Very hard for me to get there. And I think maybe as an ambitious person, as someone who's always looking to like, what's next, what's next on the agenda what's the ne- next task on my list that I need to, you know, cross off. I have trouble with that. And um, I think this book as, um, as a book for children, as a book that you, you know, as I would like to read to my daughter, this is something I'd like to have a discussion with her about. And um, that's the great thing about children's literature, right? It's like, it, it offers you this vehicle for you to have these like weird and hard and abstract discussions with your children so like being in the moment appreciating what's happening appreciating your friends and that sort of thing and then money as well like this opens up a great discussion for you to have with your children about money and financial insecurities Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: how they might feel looking at someone with fancy clothes and thinking that maybe that they have everything and that they are looking down on you if you, you do not and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, th- those two things really resonate with me in this. Um, I would like to be more Anne at the end of this chapter, just, like, <laughs> checking in with myself when things go well and go, okay, yeah, that was good. Mm-hmm. That was great the night is beautiful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All that good stuff. And then also the perceptions, like what you've been saying throughout this entire chapter, like people might not perceive you that that way, but that's you getting in your own head. Right. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's also good. And her just, I feel like we've seen that in her before The the ability to be present even with the knowledge that something is fleeting, like when she recognizes this might be my last summer as a little girl. So I'm going to just be, I'm going to believe in fairies with all my heart. Mm -hmm. I admire that so much that she has both. Um, It's not just that she's present because she never thinks about the future. She's somehow able to think about the future and understand like some things that are coming. And instead of getting totally swept away by that, Uh, she manages to like use that actually as motivation to just be Mm -hmm. where she is and I really admire
1: that it's good it's a good thing I mean that's the that's the sort of like adult lesson that Montgomery is trying to squeeze in there because it's Mm -hmm. not it's not completely I don't know for me it feels not completely realistic
0: Mm -hmm. right
1: for a child's behavior or maybe i just am Mm -hmm. centered within my own behavior but it doesn't feel quite it's not out of place in the narrative it Mm -hmm. works in the book but i'm like oh this is this is how you're sneaking it in yes good job yes
0: for sure i i love that you can hear all the different voices that montgomery now has inside of her do you know how old she was when
1: she wrote the book i cannot remember this is discussed um in our episode on the alpine path which is yes about her career she was not young she was yeah. older and she had already had like a fairly she had had a career that was that was going it was moving yes. she hadn't published um any books yet but poems and she was uh working as a newspaper woman so she wasn't quite yeah
0: yeah 30s? i 30s I love that she can tap into the child, the young woman, and the older woman and really like fully, um, you can feel that she can fully kind of like empathize and tap into those different stages of life with the hindsight that she has, but with like full understanding of what it's like to kind of experience that. And then, yeah, with this eye for like maybe- trying to help nudge the reader into certain understandings.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes. She's really unguarded about it too. I um, I wish I could like uh, almost out of any of the women that we've covered on the show, I wish I could interview her because mm. I feel like um, <clears throat> it happens so naturally in this book. A lot of the lessons that they teach you about like writing in school, like I'm like, oh, did you just like, have it like where did it come from yes <laughs> like this chapter the way that like everything's reinforced and um it's so short it's such a short little piece um it's i think it's nearly perfect my one criticism of this chapter mm-hmm. is um probably not that important but i would really like to know more about the poem that Anne mm. recites yes. uh which is the maiden's vow which is Uh, A very short, like, Scottish poem about um, a gal who's, uh, who vows never to marry again after her man dies at sea. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I would like that maybe to be tied into the narrative a little bit more. That would be, like, my one note. But it's not, like, huge, it's not hugely important, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it doesn't kill the tractor for me. But, um, yeah, I just, it's so neat and perfect. I'm like, how did you do that? Where'd you learn to do that, Montgomery? (laughs) Yes. Yes. But I do think she is also, um, what I do know about her, is that she's a very, like, she's a great oral storyteller, you can tell. She's she's very much like Anne as well. And so these things kind of lived in her in a very Mm. specific way, I think. Mm. Well, this has just been fantastic,
0: Lauren. Thank Thank you you. for letting
1: me ramble
0: about this chapter. No, there was no rambling. It (laughs) was—I just loved hearing hearing you reflect on Montgomery as a writer um, in a deep way, too. Because I think that's not something—that's not a conversation I've had with a lot of people. But it's Mm -hmm. so—it's something that is
1: so attractive to me about this book and about Montgomery. So he's just really good at it. It's really upsetting, (laughs) actually.